Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the phenomenon of anti-politics in Australia and what seats to watch as this federal election comes to a close. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is William Bowe. William runs the Poll Bludger election website. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. My second guest is Elizabeth Humphreys. Liz is a political economist at UTS, and her research focuses on neoliberal economic reform, anti-politics, and work. Hello, Liz. Hi, Ben. So there has been a growing support for minor parties at recent elections, with a large proportion of that vote going to parties explicitly opposed to the existing political order, such as Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. But they're not alone. There's a there's a broad range of parties, um, many of them on the right, that kind of express an opposition to politics as usual. Liz, I've heard it said that there is a growing hostility to politics and politicians in Australia. What What does this mean? I think that's definitely true. It's not um, simply a phenomenon in Australia, though. Like when I say anti-politics, I mean the growing hatred or dislike of both politicians and politics in general. And researchers internationally and um, journalists have sort of been tracking this phenomenon for, for quite a while. What the research says is that about in the 1960s, um, there started to be sort of a turn of sentiment against politics and politicians. So this trend's been going on for quite a long time, but it kind of sped up in the neoliberal era. And it's now, you know, we often measure these things um, in things like voter turnout in countries that don't have compulsory voting, the volatility of the vote. So people swinging their vote um, around more than they might have done in the past uh, membership of political parties and um, things like that. So how does uh, Australia having compulsory voting affect that phenomenon? There, there were two sort of books that came out that were sort of like academic but popular um, books. One was by Peter Mayer called Ruling the Void and one by Colin Hay called Why We Hate Politics. And both of them were trying to grapple with um, what what is this phenomenon, right? And what I would say, it's a generalised mood, right? And then there are attempts to kind of capture that mood of hatred of politicians in the form of minor parties or in the form of um, particular political projects. Now, um, in Australia, because we have compulsory voting, it's harder to see that there's been this slow decline of people stopping to actually turn out at polls um, to, to vote. So it does complicate trying to do the same sort of measures they might have done in Europe, which is what Peter Mayer's book, Ruling the Void, is about. It tracks that that really long long-time disintegration of politics or political practice and mass politics in Europe. Um, and it's a bit a bit different in Australia. We can't look at necessarily at the same statistics. But mm. I think you can see internationally um, that, that mood of sort of hatred of politicians comes out in some ways in the election of Trump, in other ways perhaps in the Brexit moment where people are trying to send messages that they don't want politics done as it's usually done. And we see that in Australia as well. People trying to say we're unhappy with um, the, w- what's on offer and we're breaking away from the traditional two-party system in various ways. So do you, do you think that with compulsory voting, uh, is it simply covering up the symptoms of this of this kind of phenomenon? In, in that it kind of we don't we don't see it as obviously because there's this disillusionment. Or do you think there is actually a phenomenon that um, actually changes the way people behave because we have compulsory voting, or at least people, the way people think? There was a an idea in the academic literature that because people were being forced to vote, this um, 
had a impact on their sense of identification with political parties. They regularly had their party identification re-energised by the ritual of voting and therefore we weren't seeing party de-alignment in Australia in the same way that you were in the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, that's probably about 20 years ago now. Yeah, though, I was that, thinking that, that wouldn't have been coming through. I think, after the 2013 federal election, for example. Well, I think what we're seeing now is, you know, a, a, a breakup that's gone beyond what was, you know, that, that kind of current in political science research, probably in about the 80s and the 90s. And what, what, what I, where I think we're seeing it is in what's happening in Senate voting. And, you know, you can just look at the House of Representatives and think that the sort of ship of the two-party system is more or less still afloat. But clearly a great many people are voting very sullenly the way that they're voting in the lower house. And given a panoply of options in the Senate, they're voting pretty much randomly. And a lot of these people are people who would not be turning out to vote at all if they didn't have to. And it's an insight on to their, you know, attitude to the whole process, that they, they're they pretty random, they're apathetic, and they're here to discharge their legal responsibility and not get fined. And they don't feel like this is a procedure that empowers them in any meaningful way and that democracy works, you know, in, in the way that it's supposed to. Like, I wouldn't say apathetic because I think... In some ways, part of what's going on with anti-politics is that there is a deep uh, dissatisfaction with politicians and the political Mm. system. So it's not a question of, um, you didn't say apolitical, but it's not a question of not wanting to say something. I, I read a statement into the election of Trump into a growing vote for Palmer um, at the previous election, into people searching for minor parties and people who are not the typical politicians. I think the people who do well in Australian politics are the people who can present themselves as not the usual suspects. Um, You know, even Kevin Rudd was able to do that. I'm not from the Labor union traditional system. I'm outside that. Mm. I'm going to do things differently. Now, these things mostly fall over very quickly because to tap into that kind of hatred of politicians but then again disappoint voters, that's that's the big problem for these characters. I agree that apathy wasn't the right word. I think the concept that I'm looking for here is efficacy. Their, people do not believe that their vote is going to change anything within the existing structures of the system and the best that can be achieved with a system that people don't think really is democratically representative is to throw a grenade into the whole thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I started by mentioning One Nation and we have a series of these parties that are on the the far right minor parties and we also have other kind of minor parties. But it sounds to me like this maybe this overlaps at certain times with the far right, but it's it's more of a phenomenon that moves through politics that sort of doesn't just belong to one side. So what where would you see the difference being between, say, the phenomenon of the, you know, people voting for Pauline Hansen and groups like that and anti politics that maybe, you know, how how those are not the same same thing? Sure. I think that's no different here than overseas that in an attempt to capture this this anti-political mood, different political projects come on the scene, understanding that there is this fragmentation and trying to capture that for their own political projects. And that can be things on the right, like Trump or the far right in Europe or um, Palmer or others in Australia. 
Hanson in particular, Palmer's a bit more confusing, I think, in terms of politically how people see him. But it also can be on the left. Like if we look at Spain and we look at the um, Indignados protests, like I I see that as part of the same phenomenon. Like, you know, in those square protests in uh, Barcelona and Madrid and elsewhere, political parties were actually banned from attending. So it's not necessarily a left or right wing phenomenon, but who can mount the political project in order to capture that mood. Now, so I think in Australia, the Greens were able to, particularly around the global justice movement, the Iraq war and the Tampa election. So say the year 2000 as a point in time, able to capture people's growing dissatisfaction and hatred of politics as usual. But not anymore. Yeah, absolutely. They've tried to straighten themselves up and pre- present a professional front. With the Rudd government, they were kind of seen as in bed and part of the political system. And it means they can't capture that sentiment in the same way. Yeah, and um, I would point to the fact that you've had a very subdued One Nation vote in South Australia. Because there you have had a entrepreneur who was Nick Xenophon who, you know, was able to, you know, capture the anti-politics sentiment. Now, his actual policy program or his philosophy, if that's the right word for what it was that he had, had very little in common with One Nation. So it's, you know, it's these sort of voters who are anti-political, so to speak, uh, you know, they're a target of opportunity. You know, they are will, will look at what's available. If a Donald Trump comes along and, you know, starts presenting himself as outside the system, then, you know, that's a direction a lot of them will go. But uh, a lot of those people might just as easily be happy voting for something maybe progressive is going too far, but, you know, certainly not right wing, which, you know, was where we came in. This It's too easy to say that this is, you know, a straightforward phenomenon of the electorate moving to the right, which in, in so many ways the opposite's happening. You know, I think the Australian electorate is a lot more socially democratic than the political system that's serving it now. So it's a, a, a question of, you know, who actually takes the initiative to build up a political movement that people will, will, will seize hold of to give vent to their anti-establishment, anti-neoliberal sentiment. You know, it, it can manifest in many ways. I think that requires more research and something that I'm quite interested in. What is the connection between the economic reform that happened in the 70s, 80s and 90s in countries like Australia and this growing or established disappointment and hatred of politicians. You know, neoliberalism and those the kind of economic reforms introduced under Hawke, Keating and then continued under Howard was about saying partly that the free market is so powerful, politicians have less of a role in making decisions. It is understandable that people are annoyed and upset with politicians for refusing to tackle key issues when, for a whole period, hands were thrown up in the air. It's the free market. It's globalisation. We can't change these things. So it sounds to me like we're talking about something which, while it's not a completely new phenomenon, is certainly a phenomenon that uh, it hasn't always been with us. It's not a. It hasn't been like a permanent feature of Australian politics. Like I think there's there's always been a certain not taking politicians seriously, maybe, or sort of, you know, not not elevating politicians in the way that some other countries have. But um, this is this is sort of a new phenomenon, right? Like maybe not brand new, but it's a it's a thing that's developed over the last few decades, at least, if not less time. 
There was a really interesting study in the UK which was able to look at this sort of mass interview study um, with people about politics, I think from the 40s or 50s, right, and then compare that with political attitudes now. That's how they identified that partly these trends are happening from the 60s onwards. People have, what they sort of concluded in very basic terms was People have always disliked politicians, but they may have had faith in the political system. Mm. The difference now is people don't like politicians. That's similar. But actually, there is a lack of faith that the political system can solve problems and that there are people who can or will be elected who will intervene to um, ad- address the way society works. Now, that's a that's a pretty fundamental shift. And this is why politicians are so worried about what they would call political disenfranchisement or um, populism, which is often used as a pejorative thing. But for me, it's not so much about, um, in Australia how many seats does Hanson get, but what are the material conditions that lead some people to vote for Hanson? Or what are the particular hurts that mean that people are searching around for these minor parties and can swing between One Nation and Xenophon? And I think that's a really useful point. It's not that these people are idiots. They actually don't like what's on offer. And even the minor parties that come up don't really um, quite fit, fit for them. So let's think about this in the context of 2019. So we have we had the new voting system before the last election. Interestingly, one of the things about the old voting system, right, was you had all these minor parties that shared preferences even when their ideology didn't really match. Uh, we, we had the last election where quite a lot of minor party members got elected. Um, a number of those have now changed parties. The Nick Xenophon team has gone away. You know, Central Alliance is running in South Australia, but... It's no longer the same phenomenon it once was. One Nation is still around, but has, I guess you could say, it's gone through some battles since the last election, and you have the return of Palmer. What particular element of this election do you think is most interesting in the context of this sort of concept of anti-politics? Well, for me, I guess the two things I've been thinking a lot about is what is going on for the Greens, and I have thought for some time they've been in difficulty. Like if you look at the the vote compass information, the level of um, political trust for Di Natale is almost the same as Shorten. Now that is a big problem for a minor party that presents itself to be a credible and trustworthy alternative to politics as usual. And so I'm interested to see what happens with the Greens in this election. In other ways, you can see real high points like what's happening with Burnside in Kuyong. Um, you know, obviously the um, the poll polling looks really good in terms of him versus um, Frydenberg. And so the Greens have a bit of a contradiction. They're able to run somebody who has been really prominent in the refugee campaign and people are willing to really latch on to that in what is traditionally a blue ribbon seat for the Liberals. But in general, the Greens, I think, have a significant problem. On the other hand, you've got Lambie trying to hang on in Tasmania. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens there, because I think she she is one person who was elected on a, on a wave of sentiment of just mm. absolute disappointment, 
hatred and um, disillusionment disillusionment with um, the two major parties. And Lambie hasn't really had that moment of being tested and sort of failing the test, right? Like she she kind of acted as a crossbencher and then got tossed out on kind of citizenship grounds, which I, I don't think a lot of people take very seriously as a good reason to get rid of a politician. So in a sense, she sort of still got that pure image that could could work for her again. But on the other hand, she's sort of been out of the public spotlight. Absolutely. But I read an article with her saying, um, talking about campaigning um, in her seat in Braddon, um, where she was saying people just don't want to talk politics. Mm. And I think even she doesn't understand, even though she's trying to capture this political mood, that it's not a question of people don't want to talk politics, but actually people don't trust politicians. So she says people are polite and they're happy to talk to her. They just don't want to talk to her about politics. Well, why is that? Um, I think that the um, manifestations of the anti-politics phenomenon are all personality driven. Uh, and I think the underlying idea behind people who uh, seize on to any of the people we've mentioned, you know, from Jackie Lambie to Donald Trump, is that they want someone to who is sort of strong-willed and a strong personality and that they don't have faith in the way that people did back in the 40s and the 50s, that what we have here is a, you know, a, a democratic structure that gives expression to the vox populi. <laughs> so... As a result of that, we have it's all very fragmented. You know, one nation keeps breaking apart on contact with any sort of pressure at all. And all of these, you know, Nick Xenophon, as we mentioned, his sort of party's sort of been and gone already. You know, Jackie Lambie, you know, all of these parties are built around a personality. Therefore, they haven't got any staying power. And we mentioned what's happened to the Greens. Well, what's happened to the Greens? They've become a political party. And therefore, they aren't, you know, even if they're an anti-establishment political party, that's what they are. And that just doesn't seem to fit the mould of what the anti-political voter is looking for. Like often we talk about um, One Nation or what's happening with polling as if these are sort of abstract questions. In a period where people are looking for alternatives, when the far right and racists can present themselves as those alternatives, it's a real threat and has a real impact packed on people's everyday lives. And I think in Australia we do have this weird tension. We both have um, social attitude surveys telling us that the community is more progressive than they used to be on a whole range of issues. But at the same time, we have people who are open racists and a fascist in parliament mm. and, and people still vote for them. Um, and I think that's a, that's a real dilemma for politicians and why they're so worried about this question. For social scientists, I'm really thinking about where does where does the struggle come from it doesn't necessarily have to come from politicians but actually can come from ordinary people yeah you know i had a notion that pauline hansen was going to struggle with the fact that she's not in touch with the average australian anymore she hasn't been for a very long time and she's completely out of touch with this mood that people want us more sort of welfareist system of government you know she's very um anti you know she's uses rhetoric about dull bludgers and things that might have made sense 20 or 30 years ago. But, you know, she's been living in a cocoon since then. She doesn't uh, appreciate the, the the social democratic sentiment, but it hasn't done her any harm because, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, what people want is a lightning rod. They're not looking to a Pauline Hanson to precisely explicate what their yeah. specific policy preferences are. They just want to punish Major parties. Yeah. So we're recording this on Monday night. We're five days out from the election. Uh, Labor has consistently led in the national polls, but 
not by a lot in the recent ones. We had a news poll today that was 51-49 to Labor, which was the second in a row for news poll. Uh, And there has been conflicting stories about how the election is playing out in local marginals. While Labor is competing in a large number of government-held seats, there's also a number of places where the coalition appears to be making a claim. So, William, you and I will be covering the election on Saturday night, as we usually do. Which of these many races will be top of your list to watch as the result comes in on Saturday? It's a very hard question to answer um, because, well, there are a lot of them. And uh, the, the swing is expected to be highly uneven. I think a lot of that is because you have a you had an unusual personality leading the Liberal Party by contemporary standards for that party in 2016. Mm. Uh, you had Malcolm Turnbull, who played well in sort of inner urban, more established sort of areas, but he did not go down well in the regions or the outer suburbs. And now you have a leader who is making his pitch to win back the constituencies that were lost in 2016. But in doing so, they've probably lost the constituencies that Malcolm Turnbull gained in 2016. So as a result, I think we're going to see a highly uneven swing. And we are hearing a lot of talk about seats the Liberals can win back, given that this is, you know, the, the sentiment still is that Labor are more likely to win than lose. Nonetheless, we are seeing talk of a, a, a remarkable number of seats where the, the Liberals are really putting in a determined effort to win on Labor from Labor and genuinely seem to believe that they can do it. So I, I think to, to give you a, a sort of pat answer to that question, I, I think that the question that the seats they'll immediately be looking at is, are Labor actually going to lose seats? Mm. Are they really going to lose seats in northern Tasmania? I think there's a feeling that they probably will lose Herbert in northern Queensland, which was a bit of a peculiar circumstance last time. Um, and, you know, there are seats around the place, like when the numbers finally come in from Western Australia, will the Liberals be competitive in Cowan? Or have they been deceiving themselves and the media about how competitive they are in these sorts of places in order to sort of inflate their tyres and build a bit of momentum behind themselves? I think definitely it will be worth watching to see if, if the Liberals can gain any seats because if, cause if, if they can't... Mm. If well, the, it's over. It's over yeah. if they can't. So the, the government needs to gain three seats in order to mm. regain its majority. Uh, and if they're, if they're not in a position to do that, it seems very unlikely that they will. Um, so that that's definitely one I'll be watching. So, I mean... When So when on the night will we be expecting those results to come in? Because you mentioned Western Australia. So my understanding of, so those of us who will be sitting in front of computers watching probably will start to get a few small snippets around like 6.30 maybe. You start getting some real numbers maybe around 7 o'clock. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, in terms of the um, the the ritual of election night, Ah, I remember with fondness 1993 when it happened in the window when Tasmania had dropped daylight saving and the other eastern states hadn't. That was also the case in 2004. I remember driving home from a polling booth. I'm not sure what the deal is there, but you do get a little window in about March or October as well. And the polls closed in Tasmania at 5pm on the mainland east coast. 
we were getting results from Tasmania coming in just as polls were closing, like at six o'clock. Yeah, I do recall now, and this was when there was that backlash against Mount Latham over yeah. the forestry policy. And, they lost and that was the moment program. where people knew that, yeah. Yeah, and the game was up pretty much immediately. In 1993, I vividly remember the stunning results that came in early from Tasmania, which completely went against the script that everyone was expecting Paul Keating to lose that election to John Hewson. And the first thing out of the bat, you know, these really amazing results that no one saw coming from Tasmania came through. Now, Uh, That's fabulous if you are a a junkie of the drama of election night, which I am, and that's the hat I've got on in answering this question. Unfortunately, we're not getting any of that this time. There's no daylight saving. So pretty much everything except for South Australia and Western Australia will be coming in right off the bat and it'll all come in a big flurry and it's not enough time to chew what's happening. But the thing to be noted about the early results that come in is that polling booths count their results individually and submit their results when they've finished their count. What this means is the first results to come through are tiny little country booths, usually in safe National Party seats. We'll get some uh, booths in Maranoa and Yep, that, that, and that's parks the first and... thing that will happen, and they will be analysed in a way that 200 votes never should be analysed <laughs> because they've got nothing else to talk about and they've finished with overanalyzing the exit poll. So, you know, we will get, you know, some rather excessive commentary on those uh, quirky little results that come through. But that is absolutely not where the election is going to be decided. I think starting from about 7.30, it'll all hit us in a flood. So if you're planning to have dinner and take a break... At six o'clock is a good time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So probably the the seven to eight hour where we'll probably, that's the point where you start, the numbers start coming in so fast that you can't Mm. keep up with them all. And uh, (laughs) to confess, in my experience, that's usually the point where you just keep an eye on the total on the Mm. ABC calculator and then slowly try to catch up. Yeah, that's right. The vote numbers slow down. Um, And then we will, polls will close in South Australia half an hour behind the East Coast, which largely means Mm. South Australia just sort of gets fed into the wash of the East Coast. It's still sort of part of the flood to an extent. Western Australia, however, the question is, will, are we going to be looking at a cliffhanger result which leaves everyone hanging on that, you know, 90-minute delay before we see if a different dynamic is playing out in Western Australia, which is going to tip the scales one way or another. And the seats in Western Australia we're talking about are, we're talking about Cowan, which is a Labor-held seat. It's one of those seats where it'll be a question of whether they can hold on. But then we also have uh, Pierce, um, Sterling would also be one of those as well, Hasluck. And Swan, I think that pretty Swan much actually, covers yeah. the, the, the seats that are realistically in uh, play. I think Labor might have had bigger designs on Western Australia before, but uh, uh, that Labor have had to scale back their expectations. There was a bit of campaigning being done in the seat of Canning, which is sort of in the 6 to 7% range. So is Sterling. But Sterling is uh, the... Michael Keenan has been the member for 15 years. He's retiring. He's got a big personal vote. And uh, it, it was always historically a marginal seat. So uh, factor in the loss of his personal vote, and I think Sterling becomes a, a classically marginal seat again, whereas Canning's probably a bit far out there. The other seats that we're referring to are all the standard battleground seats in Western Australia, which is to say that the Liberals kept on winning them for about 15 years. But uh, that was, uh, in particular, during the Howard era slash the resources boom. The Western, uh, the Liberals were completely dominant in Western Australia. 
Both of those things are over now. There's a terrible economic hangover in Western Australia. They had a landslide Labor victory at the state election in 2017. So, you know, there was a feeling that all of these seats that were, you know, the, the, the bellwether seats in Western Australia throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s were Liberal seats for about the last 15 to 20 years and maybe this is the election where they become, you know, marginal again. So we've established that in that seven to eight hour where really everything will be happening, you can't keep up with every seat. You can't keep up with all the ones that are in play. Uh, Liz, what are, your, are there particular seats that you find particularly interesting that you would want to see some results from? I'm not an election night devotee like you two, so I'm often usually just checking... Uh, Things like Lambie's seat, like mm. uh, are, are politicians like her or Palmer, have they been able to continue to capture that mood or not? And obviously I usually check my own seat, mm. um, which I've just moved, so that's now Grandler. Um, and I usually check the seats where I grew up. Now, they're both safe Labor seats, Jellybrand and Layla. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I like to check is... You know, here you have these two electorates that have, you know, voted for Labor since they were established with massive, massive margins. But that's where my family lives. That's where people I know live. And I know how disappointed they are with politicians. And so, you know, looking at those 13, 14, 15 percent margins, that it really can't um, offer politicians much um, kind of ease um, when they know just how, even in those sorts of seats, how angry um, voters are with those political parties. So one thing that's interesting about trying to track that phenomenon on election night is the Senate vote will come in a lot later, yeah. and that's really the place yeah. where this will mostly play out. Mm. But the often it's a bit harder to track in the lower house vote because most of these parties only run in a few seats, they don't mm. run everywhere, that you know, they may or may not be the candidate on the ballot. But Palmer is running in all 151 seats, so it would be interesting to see uh, whether he does well in those kind of outer suburban um, marginals. I actually was doing some research for a blog post that went up on Monday morning, and his highest vote in Queensland, well, in Australia, but his highest vote anywhere in the country was in the kind of the parts of southeast Queensland that were not Brisbane. And it was a lot higher there than when you got into like the deeper regions of Queensland or any other part of the country. And your so. interactive graph on your website with where he's over 10% mm. and where he is and is actually quite interesting, I think, to look at in terms of that. Um, so I will be interested. I think the, the Greens lower house vote is worth um, thinking about on election night mm. as well. Um, and they have a few seats which could be in play, mostly in Melbourne um, as well. And, you know, like obviously when you're thinking about something like Kuyong, people kind of derisorily call it the, you know, doctor's wives effect. But I think that's unfair. I It will, you know, the fact that it is so close, I'll be interested not to see necessarily whether the Greens can win it, but if that seat does look, it ends up being as close as it looks now, um you know that's a that's a real problem for the liberals both the bases of both parties are fragmenting right um and mm. both in terms of membership in terms of the sort of civil society organizations that are fed into them and in terms of their votes um i think the one thing that can be said with certainty is this election's not going to solve that fragmentation issue for either party no so we we get past 7 and 8 and it will be quite a while before we get any substantive Senate votes. The other phenomenon that might be worth watching as well is that um, pre-poll voting 
uh, is growing. It's bigger than it's ever been before. Yeah. Where where like, I think it was over two million people had already voted as of as of the end of the weekend. Um, those votes will tend to come in later yep. in the evening. They Most of them will be counted on the night. At least the in-area pre-polls will be counted on the night, but they will come in quite late. Yeah. And that was a phenomenon we saw in both the Victorian state election and Wentworth that it looked like Karen Phelps had won more comfortably than she ended up winning, and mm. it looked like there was a number of those kind of the sort of seats that are a bit like Kuyong at the state level in Victoria where it looked like Labor had done better than they ended up doing on the night and the pre-poll votes came in and the swing wasn't as big. So it will be something to watch that if the election is relatively close, we may want to say we're just going to have to wait to see some of this pre-poll that's grown so much yep. that we can't necessarily know exactly how that is skewed compared to the rest of the population. Yep, I, I've been itching to make that point for the last few minutes because it's absolutely something that I should have mentioned when I was talking about the chronology of election night. Um, it is, and it is a new phenomenon. We've got these pre-poll voting centres that are now getting 10,000 plus votes cast at them, which is three times as big as even at the biggest election day polling booth. And those numbers are coming in at 11 to 12. And as you rightly say, the, the dynamics in those booths have been very different from the election day counting. With each election, we see a new wave of people taking up pre-poll voting. They aren't necessarily representative of the election of the electorate as a whole. Therefore, what we're, what the networks are doing early on election night is they are extrapolating the swings in polling booths on election day out to the totality of the result. But then later on in the night, when you think you've got a seat done and dusted, we saw this in a number of seats in Victoria, as you mentioned, and we almost saw this in Wentworth. Something very different's happening in the pre-poll booths, and that, you know, it turns out you couldn't extrapolate the polling day booths for the totality of the result. And uh, what in particular happened in those cases was that it, we saw that things snap back to the Liberals late at night. They hadn't lost Brighton and Sandringham, as it appeared they had in, in Victoria. On the other hand, in New South Wales, this wasn't really a factor. The, the, nothing too radical did happen in pre-poll voting in New South Wales. And uh, I guess you've just got to look at the very different circumstances of those two elections in that there was that, you know, blue ribbon area backlash against the Liberal Party in Victoria, where at, where I think in Victoria, the Liberal Party there had made the mistake of trying to, you know, court populist sentiment and be law and order and push all of those sorts of barrows that, uh, you know, really made them look out of touch with that, you know, that base that they've got, you know, the, the traditional Liberal Party heartland in the inner urban areas. Whereas Gladys Berejiklian presented a different face of the Liberal Party in New South Wales and that, you know, kind of backlash didn't occur and therefore that nothing untoward happened on pre-poll voting. So pre-poll um, is a thing to watch in the evening, which I, I think probably won't stop us from knowing the result on the night, but it may mean... It may mean we don't know it until later than we usually do. Yeah, and it may be we say, look, it looks like Labor has gained ground, yep. but whether it's whether they've won a comfortable or large majority or a hung parliament yep. situation, we're going to have to wait until possibly after a lot of people have gone to bed. Yep. Be a little bit circumspect about those early seat projections that are come as of about sort of seven or eight o'clock. Um, because a lot of those calls, increasingly, it seems to me, end up getting retracted later in the night. So those of you who are voting pre-poll, this is your fault. Um, <laughs> I say that as someone who voted pre-poll. I think I had a good reason. But um, but uh, that, is, uh, that is a thing that's going to... That's, 
going to happen? I mean, maybe we get to a point where we just settle into a third of the country votes at pre-poll yeah. and it settles and we get a kind of a better trend over time. But This, this is a subject for another time, I guess. But, you know, the the, the, the democratic value or shortcomings of pre-poll voting are beginning to emerge as an issue. There are suggestions that three weeks is too long. What sort of interests me about this is that this argument goes on in America. It's invariably the Democrats who want a longer period. Republicans want a shorter one. Democrats want it to be easy to vote. Republicans want it to be hard to vote. Uh, we haven't seen that dimension of the debate arise in, in Australia. Uh, maybe the politicians don't you know, yet have an appreciation of whose interests a long pre-poll vote is in. We'll see. We get the lower house regular primaries come in, the 2CP will come in, so we'll get a preference flow in most seats. Mm. Um, no thanks to Clive Palmer. Yep. Um, and then we will get the Senate later in the night, but the Senate will mostly be something that we will have to be watching over the coming weeks. It's not really a thing yeah. for election I mean, night. I think you, you, you get a pretty good sense of where the Senate's likely to go by looking at trends in the lower house. Because, I mean, it, when I was asked the question, what will I be looking at on election night, I was giving a very sort of horse race-ish response to, you know, who forms government. But as you sort of rightly point out, given we're talking about anti-politics here, um, you know, it could be, well, Labor are going to win the election. You know, that's interesting in of itself, obviously. But it's missing a big part of the picture of what's going on in Australian democracy right now. Yeah, often we know the government... Um, mm really quite early in the night. Yep. But whether they are going to find it easy or hard to actually govern is mm. the thing that takes some time to sort out. Which is critical, right? You think about uh, Tony Abbott's inability to get his budget through in 2014 and things like that. It completely makes or breaks governments mm. and the impact that they have on people's lives, whether they can work work um, harmoniously with the Senate. Yep. And not, not just in terms of the complexion of the Senate, Okay, you know, we it may be that we've got a Labor government, but if they're getting elected with thirty-four to thirty-five percent of the vote, then you know they you've got mandate and legitimacy issues. We sometimes talk about if someone gets a majority of the two candidate preferred vote, then it's a fair result. But if you ever yeah. get to a point where thirty percent of the country is voting for someone else, and the preference system. Mm. Uh, does a very good job of ensuring that the Labor-Liberal balance is right but doesn't really take into account the balance between major parties and minor parties, then you have to wonder about mandates or any of that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to William and Liz for joining me. Thank you, William. Thank you. And thank you, Liz. Thanks to both of you. So we will be back with another episode on Sunday. Hopefully it'll be out uh, not too late on Sunday. We may also do an episode about the polling quite late this week. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. Um, but we'll, there will definitely be more unless some uh, external personal events intervene. But hopefully there'll be some time for some more podcasts before then. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.